0: And Rob, you know, uh, there's an interesting one that came up here with a brand new trailer that dropped today. What do we got?
1: John Paul Thomas Anderson, the great Oscar nominated director who last graced us with Phantom Thread, a movie I really liked. I love that movie. I did, too. Uh, I mean, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I I, what what a wonderful movie. Uh, His new film from Focus and MGM, uh, the trailer dropped today. Licorice Pizza. What an intriguing title. Uh, The film, Like Boogie Nights, is set in 1973 to begin with in the same locales, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, and Punch Drunk Love, the San Fernando Valley, John, where he grew up. And the new pick stars Alana Haim from the all-sister rock band Haim that Paul Thomas Anderson's actually made videos for and Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, Cooper Hoffman. And they play Alana Kane and Gary Valentine, who are growing up, running around, and falling in love in the valley. And, of course... Uh, Bradley Cooper is in this movie, John, playing a young John Peters, yep. whose life was sort of de- depicted in the Warren Beatty film Shampoo, but he's playing somebody who looks even more like John Peters and uh, corrects the pronunciation of, at the time, his wife, Barbara Streisand's name in the trailer, which I thought was pretty funny. That's actually based on a, something true that happened. I don't know. I mean...
0: Now, wait a minute. For lo- people who, who think they recognize the name John Peters, he was really most immortalized in that it is that same John Peters that um uh uh why am I freezing on Kevin Smith? Kevin Smith immortalized him, of course, in that story about Superman Returns. Yes. About that he's that that Kevin Smith that wanted him, or that Kevin Smith story where John Peters wanted him to put a spider into it and all that kind yep. of stuff. And then, of course, immortalized again by Uh, You know, the one of the only John Schnepp who had John Peters in his documentary, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happens. That's the that's the guy that Bradley Cooper is playing in this. Yep. (laughs) So that was funny.
1: And he he was a producer uh, of Batman, Tim Burton's Batman. And and he 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 and Peter Goober were uh, represented the notoriously represented, I guess, the profligate spending of late 80s, early 90s Hollywood And uh, he is quite a character. So I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. What what did you think of the trailer?
0: Um, Listen, it's Paul Thomas Anderson. The movie's going to be, I mean, look, the movie's going to be great. I mean, you never know 100% until you see it. But I feel pretty safe in saying this movie is going to be great. And by the way, Hoffman's son, for a second there, I thought, is that Gandolfini's son again? Like just, just for a second. I thought he looked a little bit like James Gandolfini's son again, who of course is coming up in many saints of Newark. Um, so the movie's going to be great. Obviously it is. I'm a big fan also, um, of, of his movies that he's done throughout Bradley Cooper, big fan of his, I've been a fan of Bradley Cooper before it was cool to be a fan of Bradley Cooper. I was a big fan of Bradley Cooper from, uh, the show he did with Jennifer Garner. Why am I freezing on the name of it now? Um, What was uh, alias uh, alias? Thank you. I was going to say anonymous. It's not anonymous alias. I was a big fan of Bradley Cooper in alias and I was always cheering for Jennifer Gardner's character to end up with him. But anyway, there's that. So the, the movie's going to be great, Rob, the movie's going to be great. But what do I think of the trailer? (laughs) I thought it was a terrible trailer. I thought it was a terrible trailer. Listen, if I didn't know that this was a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and I just watched this trailer totally clean, and I had no idea it was a Paul Thomas Anderson film. There is nothing in this trailer that made me interested in seeing this movie. I mean, I am already automatically hooked into seeing it because it's Paul Thomas Anderson, so the yeah. movie's going to be great. I can't wait to watch it. But this trailer did nothing to amp up that excitement. Again, I I swear, Rob, if you if if you took off Paul Thomas Anderson's name and you didn't let me know he was involved in this at all and you just showed me this trailer and said, are you psyched to see this movie? I'd say, no. Mention Paul Thomas Anderson, it's his film, then yes, obviously. But I, honestly, I don't think this film, this trailer did a very good job. I don't think this trailer is going to get anybody, let me reword this. I don't believe that this trailer is going to get anybody excited for this movie who isn't already excited for the movie because it's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. So I I honestly didn't think the trailer was that good. The movie's going to be great, but I, I don't know. What did you think of the trailer itself, though, Rob? Uh, you know, the tone of it to me was, I have to say, a
1: little underwhelming. Um, obviously, it, it looks like the period is so beautifully evoked, the art direction's spot on, but I, I, I didn't get, I mean, knowing I love Boogie Nights and and knowing what he did, again, I, I think he's a, a world-class filmmaker, but I just thought there was nothing in the trailer that felt new to me. Um, it kind of gave me an Almost Famous vibe, but Almost Famous had the whole rock, because that takes place in 73 too, had the whole kid being kidnapped by rock stars vibe. And I'm like, Almost Famous is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I just, I wanted more from him. You know, it's a first trailer, and yeah, uh, I'm yeah, willing it's to first give him the benefit trailer. of the doubt. So, but, hey, I'll watch it.
0: <laughs> but, but like I said, I'm already on board with the movie. Like, I, It's a Paul sure. Thomas Anderson film. It's going to be great. I have no doubt. I, I just thought they could have put a better trailer together. I don't know. Guys, question is, what did you think about the trailer? Be honest. If you didn't know it was a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, would you have thought that's a good trailer? If yes, cool. I, I honestly didn't. But whatever you guys think about it, jump down into the comments section below. And let us know your thoughts. And by the way, our friend Luke Manley sends in a Super Chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Luke. I appreciate that very much, man. All right. With that down and out of the way, let's do one more off the top. And that is this. Rob, a bunch of years ago, a number of my friends were psychotic fans of Babylon 5. I don't know. Uh, did you did you watch Babylon 5, Rob? Oh, when, yes, John. It's celebrated by a lot of people as being one of the greatest things of sci-fi ever on television. Like, there's a lot of people who love it. I had this one buddy of mine in particular. For those of you who've been following me for a really long time, you'll remember the name Darren Connolly. My buddy Darren, who used to do the movie blog podcast with me back in the day, he was fanatical about Babylon 5. Absolutely fanatical about it. Now, I always liked it. I I never had the same level of appreciation for it, uh, honestly, that a lot of people did. But I always enjoyed it. I thought it was a really good, solid show. And people have been wanting a return to Babylon 5. Well, good news, folks. You're getting what you want. It's been made official. A Babylon 5 reboot is coming. But to really make you excited, if you're a fan of the original... It's not just coming from anybody, it's coming from the original series creator who's going to be writing the damn thing. And I never pronounce his name right, but uh Michael Strazinnski? Okay, yeah. so maybe I did say it right. Michael Straczynski himself is coming back to write it and is going to be put on CW. This is what's coming up from us uh, from the Folks at Variety. A Babylon 5 reboot is in development at the CW Variety has learned. Original series creator Michael J. Straczynski is on board to write the project. He will also executive produce under his studio JMS. Banner. Warner Brothers Television, which produced the original series, will produce the reboot as well. Rob, look. I know there's going to be some people who are not stoked about the idea of this being a CW show. I understand that. But what you got to do is look past which channel is it going to be on, and you got to look at who's actually making this show. It is the original studio with the original creator writing and producing this thing. If you are a fan of the original Babylon 5, there is... don't worry about the fact that they're going to air it on this network. Forget forget that. Forget that. You have no reason not to be extremely psyched for this. Now, I, I, unless of course, Rob, there's probably some Babylon 5 fans that were like that are probably thinking I would rather see a continuation of the story, like relaunch the show now it's 20 years later and do a continuation. I okay, that's understandable. I would probably feel the same way about a Star Wars project. So, I would understand that. But Again, if you're a fan of this thing, number one, it's coming back. Number two, it's the original studio. Number three, it's the actual creator doing it. I I think you got to be thrilled with this. Rob, you watch this show. You're a fan of this show. What do you think about this news?
1: Well, I I think it's pretty exciting. I mean, Babylon 5 is one of the best long form serialized science fiction shows I think that's ever aired. Uh, I really liked it a lot, but the only thing about it that I think hampered it was the budget and the effects at the time. The film was very effects heavy, but they had to use CGI. That was very, let's call it primitive by today's standards. Um, You know, and they were shooting in a warehouse up in, up in like Valencia and it, it did not have the production values. I mean, one of the great things about Babylon five is how creative they got with different sets. I mean, the sprawling saga went from, the Narn homeworld to Centauri prime to the shadows home planet. I mean, it was wildly ambitious and despite its budgetary challenges, the storytelling was quite amazing. And I I mean, I remember there's seldom been a time season three and season four of Babylon five are some of the most engrossing science fiction ever aired. And Straczynski never knew if he was going to get to come back every, every season to continue his story. So, I think it's nice with modern effects technology um, that they're going to come back and do this. I would say this, though. One of the great things about Babylon 5 is the character of Jakar and Londo Moral. Londo, Londo. (laughs) For his last name, I'm forgetting. Uh, Malari. uh, He those two characters have two of the greatest arcs not just in science fiction TV history, but in TV history, especially Jakar played by the late Andre Katsoulis. And if they're going to recreate those characters, man, the actors that Straczynski's got to get for this show have to be first rate. And I'm, I'm really excited, dude. I I think this is really, really good news.
0: Anyway, guys, Babylon five is coming back with the original series creator, actually running an executive producing it with the original Warner brother studio. Are you excited about this? Maybe you're over it. Maybe you think it's time has passed. Maybe you're thinking, thank God, this it's the time is ripe right now for Babylon 5 to come back. Whatever you guys are thinking, jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that down, also we just want to mention that uh, B Gill Studio sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, B Gill. Appreciate that. Now, before we get into our main topics here today, just one little quick piece of housekeeping. I want to remind you guys that if you can't get your daily fix of the Don Campus show in front of a YouTube channel because maybe you're commuting or you're at work, you're at the gym, good news. There is an audio-only version of the show called the John Campia Show Podcast. Just go to your favorite podcasting app of choice. Search for the John Campia Show Podcast. Subscribe to it today so that the audio-only version is there when you need it. And thank you to everybody who's already subscribed to the, to, uh, to the podcast. All right, guys. With all that down, let's now move into our main topics today. And how do we select our main topics here on the John Campia Show? Well, it's really simple. You see, you guys come up with our main topics. Whenever you come across a big topic issue or story that you feel we must cover as a main topic, just go anytime to 24-7 to www.thejohncampiashow.com contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on The John Campia Show. With that down, Let's get into main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by some guy who writes John, last week we discussed Eternal's PG 13 rating, Water Wet, and the more surprising addition of some sexual content in an MCU film. Now we get word that it has received an 18 plus rating in Russia, the strongest rating available. Disney is also sorry. Let me try that again. Disney is so focused on not doing R-rated material in the U.S. that this really surprises me. What are your thoughts? Are you as are you as interested as I am to see the ratings that other countries give the film in the coming weeks? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. Appreciate that. And yes, this is interesting because we did talk the other day. I think it might have been on Friday show, Rob, that we discussed the fact that we were getting a, you know, a PG-13 for ratings, for ratings for Eternals, which is, of course, no duh. It's an MCU film. Of course it's getting an MC, an MCU film is going to get a PG-13. As they said, water wet. But there was one line in the MPA rating that said one of the reasons it got a PG-13 is, what did it say, mild sexual situations or something like that? And we debated a little bit what that might mean. And clearly there's not going to be any nudity or anything hardcore, but something like, could it be something, could it not? Well, now, and this is interesting, Russia has actually given it their equivalent of an R rating. And it's the first time they've given this rating to an MCU project. Uh, This comes to us from the folks over at Screen Rant who write, According to Kino Metro, a Russian film site, Eternals has been rated 18+, which is the country's mature equivalent and considered to be prohibited for children. For comparison's sakes, per The Direct, most MCU films receive a 12+, The Avengers, Ant-Man and the Wasp, or a 16+, for Avengers Endgame, Black Widow, in Russia, making Eternals the first to go higher. The country has done this before over gay content in movies as it gave Power Rangers an 18 plus rating as well in 2017, which to me is stunning. That to me is stunning. That Power Rangers movie got an 18 plus and then you you realize, oh, that's because it had, you know, a gay character in it. And it seems like because one of the characters in this film is going to be gay, that... For that reason and that reason alone, now this is speculation, but it seems like that's the only reason they would give this thing an eighteen plus. plus they have done it before with Power Rangers. Now we haven't gotten any official word yet out of uh, out of Russia about what it's what's going to be happening or why it's getting an, an eighteen plus. But it seems to me to be pretty ass backwards thinking to rate a movie just because a character is there who happens to be gay. I, I mean. Listen, every country can do what they want. It's their country. But, I mean, that to me seems pretty ass backwards. I don't know, Rob. I haven't seen Eternals yet. Maybe we watch it and there's something pretty hot and heavy in it that it's like, oh, okay, I could see why ratings board maybe would give it. But, I mean, we've got a kind of prudish North American rating system and it got a PG-13. So, I got to say, I was surprised to hear this, less surprised once I you know, discovered that Power Rangers got the same rating as that with a gay character. And I don't know, Rob, you hear this, are you surprised? What are your thoughts?
1: Well, it doesn't surprise me uh, with any kind of allusion to same-sex relationships that in Russia it would get hit with this kind of a rating, although I think it's rather silly. Um, you know, I, if anyone watches the Netflix series Sex Education, I mean, that show pushes the envelope when it comes to depictions of all kinds of sexuality. And I think it's just fine. Um, but in this movie, I'm sure I, 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 John, I probably can assure everybody it's probably the most chaste depiction of a same sex relationship ever put on on screen. It's probably actually quite, quite sweet. I don't know. Uh, but it does. I mean, you know, Russia is Russia is who Russia is. And um, it's not like they're flying the the inclusion flag, (laughs) the (laughs) rainbow flag. It's not at the top of their parliament's list of whatever to put up those. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me. Hey, It's disappointing, but it doesn't surprise me.
0: If I want to try to be a little glass half full for a moment, if I'm going to try to be optimistic, I mean, on one hand, you could say, hey, listen, there was a time not that long ago where this, if, if there was a gay character in this movie, it never would have been allowed to play in Russia. I mean there right. was, there was a time not so if I'm going to be the optimist and be the half glass full kind of guy I I could point to that and say hey well at least they're letting it play even if they're doing something as backwards as giving it us an 18 plus for it but I don't know progress uh, again maybe I'm just trying to maybe I'm just trying to make myself be overly optimistic about this <laughs> anyway guys question is for you Russia is giving the Eternals their equivalent of an R rating. What are your thoughts on this? Jump down into the comment section below and leave your thoughts there. All right. And in the meantime, I want to point out that Colalco uh, and uh, JJ the Sith plane and another one from Colalco have, have sent in super chat badges in the live chat. Thank you so much for that, guys. Appreciate that very much. Okay. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. Rob. What is our second main topic today? Uh, This comes from
1: Dragon Ball fan Goku Vegeta. (laughs) Hey, John and co-host of the day. So I'm the co-host of the day. So hello. So my favorite games of the last few years have been both The Last of Us and The Last of Us 2. And I've been very excited about the upcoming HBO series. Wondering if you saw the first production still they put out and what you thought of it. Also wondering if you're feeling excited for this too, since I know you don't think game material generally translates well to the screen. Thanks and bring on the filthy. Well, John, I have to say from my perspective, a last of us, the first last of us had, I haven't played last of us too, but the first last of us had one of the most compelling narratives I've ever encountered in a video game. I mean, it's, I, I, I thought it was extraordinarily immersive and, uh, it, it the the amount of emotions that that game took you through was pretty impressive for a video game I, I thought and so I think it's a natural it, it's not like when you're trying to translate video games that have a lot of of gameplay and not the storyline isn't necessarily as important i mean last of us if you if you read last of Us it would still be compelling even though it was a video game. So I think it's a natural to translate into a dramatic. Oh, so I, I'm looking forward to it. The image, uh, we had Pedro Pascal, uh, the busiest man in Hollywood, apparently. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought it looked good. I mean, it's a pick, you know, it's, I got to see a trailer, but, you know, a picture is like, yeah, it looked like it's The Last of Us, but live action. Uh, Deadline says, based on the critically acclaimed video game The Last of Us, developed by Naughty Dog exclusively for PlayStation platforms, the story takes place 20 years after modern civilization has been destroyed. Joel, a hardened survivor, is hired to smuggle Ellie, a 14-year-old girl, out of an oppressive quarantine zone. What starts as a small job soon becomes a brutal heartbreaking journey as they both must traverse across the U S and depend on each other for survival. So yeah, man, I'm stoked. I I hope it's good. Uh, I'll watch it. I'll definitely be tuning in. What do you think?
0: Well, you know, I've said for a long time that one of the reasons we've had the, the video game curse for so long is because it's, it's, it's a very simple, nobody wants to accept it and that's fine. I'll say the inconvenient truth video games are made primarily, and this is the way it should be, for gameplay, for your right. immersive experience with it. That's what it, that's what makes a game great. And very rarely do you have games that are really full-fledged narrative first, that are meant to be things you sit back and just watch. They're meant to be things you engage with. And when you then translate that over to a medium that really is a just sit back and watch, it can lose a lot of that magic because it's not that immersive, interactive experience a lot of people watch. However, in the last number of years, there have been certain games that have come out that have really started to blur that line. You know, one of them for me was uh, the most recent God of War. That that God of War really did blur that line for me. Um, Red Dead Redemption 2 was another one that really started to blur that line for me. But first and foremost, it's Last of Us. The story in both Last of Us and I think the story in Last of Us 2 actually exceeded it. But the story in the Last of Us games have been so compelling, so engaging. They actually dive deep. There's no surface characters in these games. You know, the characters take hard looks. And, you Rob, I've said this before, but the thing that I love, 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 love about Last of Us 2 is it is a great study of what pain does to even good people. What does pain do to even good people? And to me, I'm watching this as like, I have rarely seen movies that address that part of the human condition as well as these games did. Like, I, I, like I'm just floored by it. And then the dynamics and the relationships that convolute those emotions and everything, like, I'm just always floored by it. So, yeah, when they put out this image, Rob, when they, when they put out this image... And I see Neil Druckmann, the guy, you know, kind of the the head guy of Last of Us for the games going, you know, actually, let's let's actually bring up what he actually said here. Mm. He said this. So this is from Neil Druckmann, who said, when I first saw them on set in full costume, I was like, holy shit, it's Joel and Ellie. <laughs> uh, the HBO adaptation of Naughty Dog's The Last of Us is full steam ahead. I cannot wait to show you more from all of our projects. Uh, I mean, I mean, at that That pretty much sums it up. I mean, you kind of look at this, you immediately know, you feel like, I I look at this image, and granted, it's just a still image. It's just a still image. Who knows? But it gives me a little bit of that same feeling, Rob, that I had sitting down and watching Lord Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring for the first time. As Gandalf rides into the Shire, and I just see that image on screen, I remember sitting in the theater and going, oh my God, we're in the Shire. Like I just I felt like it took me there. When I see this image, I'm just telling you, my imagination instantly went, "Oh my God, we're in the world of The Last of Us." It just it just felt good. It felt right. Now, who knows, Rob? This thing could be a big pile of crap. It could be absolutely awful for all we know. But I gotta tell you, I'm excited about what we're seeing so far. I like the first image, even though it doesn't give us anything per se. But again, it just gave me that little magical feeling that the opening Lord of the Rings did. I feel like looking at this picture, like we're in that world. And yeah. it makes me excited for it. I got to say, it makes me excited for it. Anyway, guys, question is for you. What are your thoughts right now on the whole Last of Us project? And now Rob, my favorite word, the tangibilization, actually seeing production images coming out of it. It makes it feel so real to us right now. I'm loving what I'm seeing. What are you guys thinking? Jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Jordan Sanders. And Jordan Sanders writes, Hey, John, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings has officially overtaken Black Widow to become the highest grossing film at the domestic box office of this year and during the pandemic. I absolutely love the film, but I didn't think that it would earn as much money as it did. What do you attribute the film's overwhelming success in spite of all the challenges it's faced? Are you surprised that it earns so much more than most people thought it would? All right, thanks a lot for sending in this question, man. Now, look, I've been you know, harping on Shang-Chi for a long time. I, ever since I went to the... I mean, I, I was expecting the movie to be good because it's an MCU film, so it's, it's going to be good. I wasn't expecting it to be great, because as we talked before, even Kevin Feige wasn't really talking a lot about it. Whenever Kevin Feige had a mic put in front of him, he seems to have been talking about Eternals. So it's like, all right, all right, I'm sure it's going to be good. So I went to go see it. And I just could not believe how good it was. Mm. Rob, I'll tell you what. I was sitting beside our friend Greg Alba from Real Rejects. Mm. And when I say beside, they, they had two empty seats between all the people in the theaters because they were doing COVID protocols. But when the movie was over and the credits were rolling, like the mid credit scene hadn't happened yet. I literally walked over to Greg and a couple of other people. And I just said, is it just me or was that fucking awesome? And they're all like, no, it was effing awesome. It was awesome. I mean, we were all just like, what, what? what? And, the, and the mid the trailer, the post credit scenes hadn't even played yet. And then the post credit scenes played and we all even got more excited. Then, of course, it came out, made fantastic money and uh, its opening weekend. Blew a lot of ple- – and my own expectations as well. It made $75 million in its opening weekend domestically, which made it second, only behind Black Widow at the time. And then it had a very small second weekend drop, which was amazing. And then it had an even smaller third weekend drop. And now it's come in at number one again at the box office for a fourth weekend in a row. Now, why that fourth weekend in a row is significant is because that sets, or at least ties, it equals the mark of the longest streak for any MCU film to be number one at the box office. There's only two other MCU films, Rob, that have been number one at the box office for four weeks in a row. And that's Black Panther and Guardians of the Galaxy. That's it. And on top of that, as they pointed out in their email, this has now officially made Shang-Chi pass Black Widow at the domestic box office mm-hmm. to be the number one film of the year domestically. And it got it really close to a number I said on this show, Rob, that I did not believe this movie could hit, which is $200 million at the domestic box office. I said I didn't. I, th- I mean, it's possible. I said it's possible. But I don't know if, if I had put 10 bucks on it, no, I don't think the single reach will reach $200 million domestically. Well, guess what? Let's take a look at the top six films right now of the year for the US box office. And this is interesting. So now we have Shang-Chi, which is now at 196.5 million. And it's making in double digit, digits still in the millions. This thing is going to make another 3.5 million. It's going to hit 200 million at the box office. I said it wouldn't do it, it's about to do it. And it it couldn't happen to a to a better film. Anyway, Black Widow now slides down into second place with 183 million. Fast Nine is in third with 172 million. Uh, Not Babylon 5. (laughs) Quiet Place 2. Again, I I am bonkers for the Quiet Place franchise. Love these films. Made 160 million uh, domestically. Jungle Cruise made 114 million. And by the way, Free Guy, I should, I should take a mention to mention this. Take a moment to mention this. Free Guy. In its seventh week, seventh week of release is still in the top three at the box office. It's at number three at the box office right now. It has made $114 It's going to pass Jungle Cruise for the number five spot of the year. A a little film that I honestly didn't even think was going to be all that great. I mean, I was interested because I'm a big Ryan Reynolds fan, but I didn't think it looked all that fantastic. I mean, I'm sure it was going to be good, but couldn't believe it's the little charming movie that could it's now by the way rob free guy has passed 300 million at the box office worldwide it just keeps chugging along so congrats to them on that but getting to the question rob about why you know why did this little film that it didn't even on the surface look like you know kevin feige was super pumping up a little film that the CEO of Disney, Bob Chapek, called an interesting little experiment. Although I understand, I understood he meant something else, but still, it wasn't a good look. That comment. Uh, this little film that you know, the marketing campaign wasn't great. It was okay. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. Why does this? Why did this film now become the number one domestic film of the year? Why does it continue to chug along? How does it win a fourth weekend in a row at the box office when a lot of new movies have come out? I think it just comes down to the quality of the film. People are going in, Rob, and watching this movie and being super entertained. They're coming back, and they're bringing new people with them. Because, Rob, I'm not the only person out there who I've got. I've seen this film seven times, all right? And every time I've gone to see it, I've seen it with new people. Every time I've seen it, I've seen it with people who haven't seen it yet. And other people are doing the same thing. Other people have gone to see and going, oh my God, that was great. And then they come back and not only do they come back, they're coming back and telling their other friends, hey, listen, you got to come with me. You got to come. You got to come watch this Shang-Chi movie. It's so much fun. And I think it's just that type of combination of charm, great characters, good humor, exciting action, and wonderful, rich mythology that we've not seen touched upon before in the MCU. I think all that has just added up to this thing having incredible legs. I mean, look, Rob, the reality is we still live in a pandemic. This thing is still going to end up with a box office number that when we look back on it in history, if we don't consider the pandemic, we're going to look at the final box office numbers compared to other MCU films and say, where did this one go wrong? I mean, so let's not be oblivious to that fact, but the fact is in this pandemic era, it has really blown everything else out of the water. Rob, when you look at this, number one, are you surprised that it's stayed at number one, four weeks in a row that it does look, it's going to cross that $200 million mark. And what do you attribute its success to?
1: Well, I mean, from the very beginning, you know, you, I was excited to see this movie because I was a fan of the character. I grew up reading the comics, you know, Shang-Chi master of Kung Fu. And I really couldn't wait to see the movie. Now, admittedly, the movie is different than the character was portrayed in the seventies, which is kind of a, cross between martial arts and James Bond, Bruce Lee and James Bond. Um, But this movie, John, after you raved about it, I'm like, is it that good? When you took me to see it, I was really surprised at how it embraced the traditions of the wuxia fantasy genre, the Chinese fantasy genre, just, and how enjoyable it was. I mean, this movie's wildly entertaining. And if you're open to this kind of fantastical film, I think it's a hugely rewarding Movie and that at its core, it really is about the conflict between a father and son. And sure, it's got it's got friendship. It's got a portrayal of a different kind of relationship between uh, Simu Liu and Aquafina than we've ever seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe before. Everything about this movie I found to be delightful, and I think it was just a rousingly good time at the movies. And I think. Uh, that's what we've been missing. You know, that's what we wanted t- to to see. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have, have have leveled, I think, unfair criticism at this movie because at the end of the day, were you entertained? I mean, mm. the, Maximus's question, were you not entertained? I was wildly entertained. When I went back and saw this movie in IMAX, I was even entertained even more. And I took Elizabeth to see it for the first time and, and she loved it. And I think the movie has a great replayability. I think when I was in the theater, there was there was people there that I knew and everybody was seeing it for a second or third time. And that's the reason people wanted a a shamelessly entertaining film that puts a smile on your face. It adds really interesting new wrinkles to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it just delivers the goods. It's exactly
0: why we go see movies. Mm. Uh, I agree. So guys, the question is for you Uh, and and let's not lose sight of this. We touched on the beginning, but still this is significant. This becomes the only third infinity war. Didn't do it. Endgame Didn't do it. Now, of course, there are a lot of asterisks to put all over this. Obviously there are, but still when you sit back and look at it, um, Captain America civil war didn't do it. This is only the third MCU film to actually hold the number one spot for four weeks in a row. Uh, Of course, joining Black Panther and Guardians of the Galaxy. So I think that's pretty significant for this little MCU film that could. Question is for you guys what do you think about these milestones, the the four weeks in a row, the hitting 200 million domestically, which it's about to do? You know, why is it holding on so well? What do you attribute the success to? Whatever you guys think, jump down into the comment section below and leave your thoughts there. All right, guys. Oh, and by the way, Rob, I just going to point out tomorrow, I'm going to go see Venom. I'm going to go see Venom tomorrow. I'm so happy. I I have so much happiness flowing through my veins just saying the words, I'm seeing Venom tomorrow. It makes me very happy. Cannot wait. Anyway, guys, look, with all that down... Let's now move on and start taking your live comments and questions, shall we? Once again, if you want to get a live comment or question read on the show or in an upcoming companion video, just go ahead and click on the tip link that's down in the description below or enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question read on one of the shows if, of course, it's appropriate for us to use on the show. And, of course, you'll be supporting our channel at the same time. And all of us, again, here at the John Campy Show, thank you guys so much for your support. Okay. Let's jump over and start getting to it here. We're going to start with Anonymous who writes, Hey, John, assuming McGuire and Garfield show up in No Way Home, what do you think the odds are of Sony keeping them around a while? I believe Sony would go out of their way to make it 100% clear that Toby and Andrew weren't in the movie if that was the case. No, I disagree with you, Anonymous. I, I don't think... Uh, they would want to do anything or make anything clear. I think right now they understand they are benefiting from the mystery. They are, even if Andrew and Toby are not in the movie, which of course I've already gone on record, I believe they will be. I have no proof that they will be, but I believe they will be. But even if they're not, Sony understands that this movie is already benefiting from all of the speculation and buzz. And they're like, hey, if the fans want to do this, let them do it. But, you know, we're not going to stomp on it. So even if they're not in it, and I believe they will be, but even if they're not, there's no reason for them. Rob, I, but I will say this. I 100% don't believe at all that we're going to see Sony or Marvel, whatever, keep Andrew or Toby's, even if they are in this movie, which I think you and I both think they will be. I I, I would be shocked. I have, I have no belief at all that they would be sticking around after the film. What do you think?
1: Uh, look, I, I I have no idea what we're going to get with this film, but I think that knowing what we know about it, knowing that we've got some villains in the movie that have been confirmed to be there, there's a lot more to be uncovered that we don't know. So, yes, I do think that we're going to be seeing other Spider-Men in the movie. Um, hell, if Nicolas Cage showed up as Spider-Man noir, it would not surprise me. Um, you just don't know. Uh, by the way, I've not heard anything along those lines. Don't people go? Oh, are Burnett said? No, I'm just kind of making fun of that right now. I don't think that's going to happen, but it could, and it wouldn't surprise me. Um, but I think it's a one and done thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know? me too. Uh, I, I, I mean, it, it, come on, you <laughs> you you've got to focus too on where's where's the money at. The Tom Holland Spider Man movies have been very very successful, and you you I don't think they want to dilute. Their brand and both Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire had their time. Although, if Spider Man No Way Home is suddenly a $1.5 billion worldwide grossing movie, who's to
0: say? What can happen next? Everything's up in the air. All right, next up, Donda writes, regarding Chris Chris Pratt voicing Mario, I love how people hate Chris Pratt and say, why does Hollywood keep casting him and stuff? Yet when Guardians 3 and Jurassic Park 3 come out, most of them will be the first ones in the theater. People are are funny, boy. Rob, I'll tell you what. I don't understand at all anybody not liking Chris Pratt. I I don't get it. Because, Because on the one hand, First of all, he is just so his on-screen presence is so charming and so fun. But it's all subjective, I suppose. But he's just so charming and so fun. I love him a lot, and I got to—I've met the guy on several occasions, and he is—I—I I might go so far as to say he is the sweetest, nicest, kindest guy I've ever met in. Yeah, as far as meeting the celebrities go, I don't know that I've ever met one that equals his level of kindness, sweetness, generosity spirit. The dude is just he's awesome. And I and I read like some people's like, oh, you know, there's a backlash against Chris Pratt. Fuck those people. They he's a super nice guy. And I, I mean, I don't know. I just, one of those things, I don't get it. Look, it's all subjective. Everybody has their own opinions about how certain celebrities hit them and all that kind of stuff. I get that. I do. And I respect that. But to me, it's, it's one of those things that bewilders me. I do not understand a Chris Pratt having backlash. I don't know, Rob, what do you think?
1: Look, you know what? Unless you know somebody, I, I think it's really hard to judge people by what you might read on Twitter or read in the media. Uh, Because nowadays we have people that are being judged by literally one sentence of something they said. And I I, I think it's crazy. And I don't know Chris Pratt. I would never make a judgment about him as a human being unless I met him. We hung out. You know, I, 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 I can't. And yet everyone is so quick to judge people online for the barest amount of knowledge of something they might have said or did or this, that and the other thing. And It's a weird world we live in, John. So I always like to reserve judgment until I've actually met somebody and spent time with them and they can convey to me who they really are. But until that time, I hold my opinions to myself, usually.
0: All right, next up, uh, we go to Jackson who writes, one of two, no idea if this has been asked before, but with with all this day and day, Day and day, you probably mean day and date streaming stuff happening. Why don't studios do the following? A cinema releases for a minimum of 45 days, then to their streaming platform before VOD to attract people to their platform. Um, um okay, uh two uh what's Jack? Jackson did not send in two of two. He only sent in one of two, and he sent it in twice. Okay, anyway. Um, listen, Jackson, what you're explaining is exactly the way they should do it. It's exactly the way they should do it. They because it's already being proved this is how they will make their most money. Put it in theaters for an exclusive theatrical window first, make all that money, then put it on a streaming platform, make more money, and then release it to the slobs who don't want to get the streaming platform, slobs like me, who don't want to get your streaming platform, haven't seen it in theater, and make money a thrice time. Did you just say a thrice time? Yes, I did. Thrice. Verily. Thrice. They make movie thrice. Because listen, Rob, Shang-Chi is making all this money in theaters, right? The movie's already profitable. It's already in the black now. It's past its break point even. It's every dollar it makes now is all profit. And it still hasn't come out on Disney+. Plus. And when they announced, what is it? November 12th is Disney Plus Day. Is that the day they said that? But yeah, I think Shang-Chi is coming out on Disney Plus on November 12th. And guess what everybody's talking about? Shang-Chi coming to Disney Plus on November 12th. Everybody's excited about it. People are looking forward to that coming out on Disney Plus on on the 12th because it played in theaters first. It got everybody excited about it. It it garnered, as you called it, Rob, that gravitas of being a true theatrical film. It got all that popularity, and now it's going on Disney Plus, and they're going to reap a lot of benefits from it then. That, That, to me, Rob, this is the model. This is the model. You're going to make money in the theatrical end. You're going to make money on your streaming end. And then for the tag alongs, you're going to get make more money on VOD. I think it is a no duh at this point. It looks like Disney is catching on to that. I don't know. Is that the model? Do you, do you maybe think there's a different way to equate that that can maybe maximize profits? But what do you think? Look,
1: you know, I've always believed that a movie's theatrical run is what it imbues it with value. And I think that, that Shang-Chi is proving that any kind of a day-and-date release is probably problematic in terms of getting a film uh, into profitability theatrically. Uh, I think we're going to see a real test with Dune, the domestic release. Dune is doing very well overseas, but who knows how it's going to do domestically because of its day-and-date release on HBO Max. I think what's going on with Shang-Chi right now is a perfect example of what they have to continue to do. Um, you know, this is a, a, a movie that is now at its fourth week at the box office, which means everyone else is like, well, movies have to end their run after 45 days. I don't know if that's such a good thing, John. Um, at least shang chis taking a while to come to Disney Plus because I could see this movie playing for another four weeks in theaters and, and remaining quite profitable. So I'm hoping that maybe this example, and we've got Venom, we've got No Time to Die coming out. Uh, huge movies that I think are going to play really well in theaters and we'll see. I, I, I think that there's been a lot of, all of this has been people have, have tried to go with the flow and figure out what's going to work and what isn't going to work and how are things going to play out. So everyone I think is in a learning, a learning mode right now, but I, I think I wouldn't be surprised if we see a, a readaptation of a, of a 60 day window. For theaters, because clearly, even during a pandemic, people are going out to the movies and seeing Shang-Chi over and over again and leaving it in a viable box office position now for a month. And think about it. I mean, we're approaching that 45 day window. Two more weeks. They, they th- theoretically should pull it out of the theaters. But why would you when it's making this kind of money after four weeks? We'll see.
0: By the way, I just got to address this because I think there might be somebody, some other people who think something as stupid as this. But one of the viewers in the live chat says something really dumb. They said, critics love... I I just love how pathetic... Anyway, critics love theater-only releases because it allows them to see movies before the rest of the public. Okay. First of all, that is one of the stupidest things for two different reasons. Stupid reason number one, maybe your life is so pathetic that getting to see a movie a couple of days early, that's the greatest thing in life. I'm jerking off. Like, maybe your life is that sad, but most people's lives are not that sad, okay? So is it a cool little thing? Sure, it's a cool little thing. But here's the other thing. You do realize, of course, that movies that get released to streaming first, I still get to see early. Like, you do know that, right? Like... Like when Jungle Cruise was coming out and they were put on Disney, you do know like two weeks in advance they sent me Jungle Cruise. You do know that when that when Black Widow was coming out on Disney Plus, you do know that they sent me Black Widow way early in advance. Like we still get to see them early, regardless on whether or not they play in theaters or whether they play on streaming. So no, uh that that is not there. Anyway, okay, next up. Uh, Let's go here to, am I in the right spot? Yes. Ralphie's World Rights. Hello. Have you heard the new Hulu show, The Premise? It's an anthology show written by BJ Novak, who, of course, was from The Office. He was the intern on The Office. Uh, he, was, he also directed a few episodes of The Office, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, anyway, uh, BJ Novak about social commentary. First three episodes are up. The first one has our boy Ben Platt. Oh, from Dear Evan Hansen, who has a sex tape but noticed social injustice in the background. I have not heard of this show, Ralphie, to be honest with you. It's called The oh. Premise. But it's, I mean, Bj Novak is is written writing it. That interests me right away. So, Rob, I'm not familiar with this. Are you familiar with it?
1: Oh yeah, as a matter of fact, I even heard. I want to say I heard on NPR, uh, Bj Novak interviewed, and uh, it's it sounds quite interesting. Uh, one, I love that it's an anthology show, but it has some really interesting stuff going on. And this, I guess, this is it. The first episode, the sex tape, uh, where where in the background of this sex tape, there is uh, a police uh, brutalization of a black man. And they have to, they use this sex tape as evidence in court. And it turns out that the guy whose sex tape it is just gets humiliated because he's trying to do the right thing and it turns out to be not so good for him. And uh, its I haven't seen that episode, but the show sounds pretty great. So I'm definitely interested in watching it.
0: All right. Thanks for putting it on my radar there, uh, dude. I appreciate that a lot, Ralphie. Well done. All right. Ralphie's World also writes in. Uh, the second has John Bernthal and Boyd Hallbrook. I really like Boyd Holbrook, who is a father of a child who was killed in a school shooting, and he takes up the job at the Nash, at the National Gun Lobby. Let's just say this episode is powerful. Uh, some have humor. So far, so good. I strongly recommend. Again, I, have, I wasn't even familiar with this show, Ralphie, so thank you very much for putting that on our radar, man. I appreciate that a lot. All right. Jonathan writes. Holy shit, they're actually doing it. They're making a Mario movie. Yep, we talked about this on the last episode. WTF and Chris Pratt as Mario, Jack Black as Bowser. What is happening? Again, I we talked about this last week and I I actually like it a lot. You know, you've you've got him, you've got Charlie Day as Luigi. My one thing, and I'm not making an issue out of it. I am not making an issue out of it. I'm just letting you know the one thing that maybe do a little bit of a second take is why not get somebody who's actually Italian to do the voices of Mario and Luigi. It's not important. Actors play people who they are not in real life. That's what acting is. So, but I admit as an Italian, my first thought was, couldn't you get somebody who was Italian to do the voices? But it's all right. It's not an issue. It's all right. I'm okay with it. All right. Next up. Uh, Let's see here. Nate writes. "Um, Hey, John. I love your channel, man, and your insights. Well, thank you so much. I've been itching to start a movie show slash channel myself. I know quite a bit about movies and who's in what film. I often feel like a nerd, and you're one of the channels that inspires me. Any tips? Well, I would say this. uh, To anybody who wants to have some – anybody who wants to have some – Uh, thoughts or tips on getting started and podcasting or or YouTubing or blogging, I literally have like a a six-year-old video up called just go onto YouTube and search for John Campia getting started. And there's like a two or three hour video that I have up that kind of walks through and all the principles are still the same. I also did one kind of recently on the channel as well where I just took a, I did it all Q and A from people wanting to talk about getting started in YouTubing and blogging and things like that. So I have that up, but just go to YouTube search for that. And hopefully that'll get you started, man. I appreciate, I hope hope that uh, helps you out, man. All right. Uh, Next up, Sean Austin's wig writes, what did you think about, uh, uh, Marcia Lucas's comment that Kathleen Kennedy and JJ Abrams don't know what the fuck they're doing with star Wars. I know star Wars is your first love. Do you think it will ever be redeemed to its former glory? Um, well, look, even somebody like me who really, really loves Rogue One, who really loves uh The Force Awakens, uh, who really did enjoy uh Solo. Um, you know, obviously I hated The Rise of Skywalker and 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 I enjoyed The Last Jedi, although, you know, not nearly as much as those other ones. There there is no going back to the original glory of Star Wars. There's no glowing going back to the original trilogy. The original trilogy for some people like me is the apex of movies. That's that that's it. Like when I think about why I love movies and what I love about movies, everything is embodied in the original trilogy of Star Wars. New Hope, Empire, Return of the Jedi. I mean, that's it. And, and so as a Star Wars fan, I don't need them to be as good as they were. Just make them good. And that's why, you know, I love Force Awakens and I love Rogue One and I, and, I, and a couple of other things as well. I certainly don't love everything Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker. Uh, I'm not a big fan of, uh, of uh, what are they called again? What, what's the new one they did with the clone troops? Uh, Oh, The Bad Batch. The Bad Batch, yeah. Um, Not a big fan of The Bad Batch. You know, there are things I like, things I don't like. But as a fan, I don't need it to be as good as before. Now, as far as, you know, uh, uh, Marcia Lucas's comments, oh, I don't give a shit what she said. She was an editor on the original films. Uh, Look, everybody's got an opinion about Star Wars. Like, I don't care if, if she came out and said, all the new Star Wars movies are the greatest things of all time. I wouldn't care. I don't care that she doesn't like the new version of stuff. It's irrelevant. She's just another person with another opinion on it. So it is what it is, but no, I don't see star Wars ever getting back to its original glory because it's just too high of a level. I don't need them to be that high. Just be good. Rob, to me, it's like when, when a crime movie comes out and, and I, I swear to God, this happens when a mafia or crime movie comes out. Usually the first p- question that people ask me is, was it as good as the Godfather? I'm like, what? Who cares if it's as good as, it doesn't need to be as good. It's like, that's the standard. It's got to be as good as the Godfather to be great. Like, no, it's not as good as the Godfather, but it's still awesome. Um, I don't know. But Rob, yeah, I don't, I'm not, I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but I don't ever see Star Wars getting back to the level because I don't think anything's ever going to be to that level, but that's just me. What is your take on it? Well, I mean,
1: Star Wars is also a product of its time. And people forget Star Wars came out in 1977. Yep. Empire Strikes Back was 80, and Jedi was 83. So you're looking at even Jedi is approaching its 40th anniversary. So the Star Wars was really a product of its time. And I think that, you know, we didn't even get, yeah, there was the Ewok Adventures and the Droids TV show, but we didn't get more Star Wars, new Star Wars, until 1999. And even the world that George Lucas inhabited, his whole worldview changed because of the success that he had with the first Star Wars trilogy and Raiders and a lot of other things. So to me, I think it's almost impossible to recreate what happened with Star Wars because when Star Wars first came out, no one had seen anything on screen remotely similar to it. There was nothing you could compare Star Wars to. So it was the first time anything like that had ever been seen in human history and now we've got the legends universe comics animation toys the mandalorian the book of boba fett i mean star wars has become a thing and it's it's all variations on a theme so i think it's we can get great star wars but it will never have the cultural impact that the original Star Wars had. And even I would say to a certain extent, when Empire Strikes Back came out, most people, despite what is believed online, couldn't believe how good it was. I mean, it was like those two movies stand as a shining example of what great science fiction fantasy films can be. And they were original, they were not based on any other IP. I mean, obviously, they were an amalgamation of a lot of other different things, but put together in such a way as to be, I mean, they're some of the most incredible films ever made in their genres and how, what they were doing. That will never happen again. It can never happen again because the uniqueness and the newness of Star Wars and, to a certain extent, Empire, because it added so much to the universe, that can never happen again. We might get things that will come close, but I don't think they'll ever surpass Star Wars because the idea of the uniqueness of it will never happen because we, it's not unique anymore.
0: That said, all right, next up, uh, Silly Goose writes, just saw the extended cut of The Return of the King in the theater, uh, over four hours, didn't get up once, just sat there in awe and took it all in, got chills when Rohan pulled up to the battle at Minas Tirith, so glad I got to see these movies in a theater, yeah, man, I mean, th- there are some, there are a lot of films, Rob, but some specifically that aren't just, you should see on the big screen, there are some movies that are you must see on the big screen. Like if you're, I, I get it. The Lord of the Rings films are getting older. Not everybody's had an opportunity to see them on the big screen. But if your only exposure to the Lord of the Rings films have been on a television, you may oh, yeah. you may love them. That's great. But I am telling you, you have not had the full experience to seeing those movies on, on the, the giant screen to see... Theoden says, you know, death right now. It's like, "Ah!" like your blood pumps and your nipples get hard and the hair stands up in the back of your neck and you feel like pounding your chest. Like it's just, it's just nothing like it. This is one of those movies. And Rob, you know, speaking of the length, I always say every movie has a unique runtime that is right for it. There are some movies that are three hours that feel like they're too short. And there are some hours that are an hour and 45 minutes that feel like they're too long. It's just that because every movie has that right, perfect, sweet spot that makes that movie sing. Some movies, the best runtime form is 90 minutes. Some movies, the best. Lord of the Rings is one of those where it's just like every second just fuels the fire. I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: Dude, I look, I agree. I, I mean, the, the extended versions of those movies, what's so great about them is it, it, it's all character development. And, and the more, you know, about what's going on, the more you care about those people. And, and you're so enwrapped and, and by what's, what's happening with these people, these characters that it, the more I, I just, I, there, those movies are, I don't think that there's movies recent movies that you can get as engrossed in as those three films, I'm always surprised whenever I sit down to watch them. I'm like, yeah, I'm only going to watch a little bit of this. And then three hours go by. And you're like, Where, where'd those three hours go? There's so much, they're just wonderful, wonderful
0: films. All right, next up, we've got, uh, who do we got here? We've got Dan Flashes writes, have you seen the show I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robbins, uh, Robinson? I have not on Netflix. He was no. on SNL for a few years before creating his own sketch show. It's brilliantly written and performed. Uh, and it's the hardest I've laughed uh, during a show in a while. I have never, never heard of this. I, then again, Netflix is the worst streamer in the world for promoting its own material. Uh, so I'm not surprised I haven't heard of this. But uh, I have not. But thank you for putting that on our radar, Dan. I'll have to keep my eye open for it. Now that I'm done with uh, Squid Game, I can uh, I can look for something else on Netflix now. So thanks for putting that on the radar, man. Uh, next up, McJesus writes, hey, John. Let me put it to uh let me put you in the shoes of an investor. You see all the IPs trying to build a cinematic universe right now, but you can only invest in one that isn't Marvel. Who do you want to invest in and why? I mean, out of ones that are currently trying to get going? Um man, I don't know. Out of ones that are currently trying to get going. Um I'll probably put my money in a quiet place. Because a quiet place, they have more, they have more films coming in this cinematic world that they're doing. And, and here's why I'll say a quiet place. It is not a big investment because they don't spend a lot of money making these movies. And they get ridiculous returns for their investment. So I If I was an investor and I'm looking to maximize the return on my investment, minimal investment with maximum return, I'm thinking Quiet Place might be it. Rob, is there a franchise out there going right now that you would uh, drop some investment money in? Uh, You know, I would have
1: to create it from scratch, I think. Uh, You know, I don't – one, because uh, I I think that if you already have a franchise that's already existing somehow, that's already – uh, being paid for by somebody, it's not a great investment for new investors. What you want to do is like everything else everybody who gets successful in Hollywood, you got to set your own trend. you got to find your own franchise and and slowly methodically build it up. and uh, I don't know what that would be right now, but I don't think I would invest in anybody's franchise that currently exists
0: mm. I get I still I still like the uh, the the quiet place one again, low money invested, big money return. Yep. Uh, a bunch of people in the live chat are saying the MonsterVerse. I I can't. I, I like the MonsterVerse. Like, I really enjoyed Godzilla versus Kong, but that is big investment with minimal return. So I, I don't know if that would be a good investment. All right, next up, uh, Pelican Mike writes, Hey, John, like you, I love Man of Steel. Uh, we know your top three comic book movies of all time are Avengers, Dark Knight, and Logan. Is it safe to say that Man of Steel will be number four? No. Uh, from what, uh, from the way you talk about it, or would you rather not put a number on it? I know you don't like to rank. Yeah, I don't like to rank. Like, I, I will often talk in terms of trinities. So I will say that, yeah, I believe personally for me, the three greatest comic book movies of all time in no particular order are Logan, uh, the, the first Avengers movie, and The Dark Knight. I think those are the three greatest comic book movies ever made. Um, now, I don't really rank the other ones, May, I'll just say that Man of Steel is definitely in my top 10. I think, I, again, to me, Man of Steel is easily the most underrated. Zack Snyder's Man of Steel is the most underrated comic book movie out there. Um, and I believe it's a masterpiece of the genre. It gets, it gets better every time I see it, so it is in my top 10. But I would not say, would it, if I actually ranked the rest of them out, would it be number four? Probably not, but it would be close. It'd be close, so yeah, that's my thing on that. But uh, yes, if you've only seen Man of Steel once, watch it again. All right, next up. Uh, Andy Burton writes, one of three. I found your cancel culture argument fascinating, and I agree with you. This is when we talked about it with Johnny Depp. Uh, There's an example of that in wrestling right now where former wrestler Tommy Dreamer, I remember Tommy Dreamer, uh, on an episode of Dark Side of the Ring, defended inappropriate behavior by Ric Flair from 2002 Uh, Since his comments, Flair has lost several sponsorships been erased from video packages produced by WWE and Tommy dreamer has been suspended as an executive in impact wrestling along with being removed as a host uh, of a bust of busted open radio. Um, Okay. So here's the thing. I can't really comment on that situation specifically because I have no idea what the situation is. I mean, obviously I know Ric Flair. Woo. Obviously I know Ric Flair but whatever this specific controversy is i have no idea i have i have no idea what it is so i can give no commentary on it at all however i will say this you know rob you remember so we were talking about cancel culture the other day and, and what is cancel culture and I, you know one of the things i said was i you know cancel culture is not somebody does something heinous and people turn away. That's been around for centuries. <laughs> you know, some, you know, a public figure does something heinous and the public turns away from them. That's not new. That's not cancel culture. That, that's been around for centuries. To me, and, and this is tough, Rob, because I said on the show the other day that one of the big struggles in discussing cancel culture is not like the word spoiler. There doesn't seem to be one common definition or understanding of what is cancel culture. Everybody seems to have a little bit of a different idea about what cancel culture is or isn't, much like different people have different opinions about what constitutes a spoiler and what does not. There's no one agreed-upon definition. For me, I kind of look at cancel culture as this. As and somebody in the live chat said it great, it says it's the weaponizing of social media. That's That's actually not a bad definition either. But it's when... Somebody says something, not does something, but says something. And then the punishment of that something far outweighs uh, what an appropriate response to it would be. So, for example, somebody murders somebody, they get life in prison. Seems balanced. Somebody steals $1,000, they got to serve a year and do some community service. Okay, seems balanced. Cancel culture to me is like a tweet that somebody said reflecting a poor or far out of date opinion or just an opinion that never was good in the first place from like five years ago and thinking that an appropriate response for that is the complete annihilation of that person's career. That to me is is kind of cancel culture and kind of like what the situation what he's talking about here about Tommy Dreamer just said he kind of supports somebody else and now he's getting busted for it too. Do you remember, Rob? I think it's one of those stupid reality shows. It's uh what's the one where they're trying to find somebody to marry and they give them a rose at the end? What's the name oh, of that? Like s- The
1: Bachelor or The Bachelor. Yeah, you know, The
0: Bachelor. I think it I think guys in the live chat, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was a bachelor where one of the contestants on The Bachelor, old pictures, I can't remember exactly how it went down, but old pictures from them in university attending like a plantation themed party got them canceled off the show. And then I think, and again, everybody correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think the host of the show kind of spoke a little bit defensively about her saying, look, I mean, she was something along the lines. She was a college student. You know, you're not thinking about those sorts of things when you're there and, but him for even daring to say something mildly in defense of her got him fired off the show and got him his career thrown out the window too. See, to me that is that is a consequence far overreaching from what the perceived offense was. So and again, I I don't know the show really correct, but uh that boy 22 is saying yeah, I remember that. Okay. So yeah, check it out. Um but I, I don't know, it's it's tough because not only then do people get canceled, but as soon as somebody tries to say, hey, you know, maybe we're being a little tough on this person, they then get canceled. And it's like, to me, that's when it starts to run amok. I don't know. How, when you look at it, how do you define what cancel culture is?
1: Well, I, look, I, I think you did a pretty good job of, of explaining what it is. I mean, I, I think to me, people, I said this earlier on the show, people are very – complex, for the most part, interesting. And they have whole lives either in front of them or behind them. And I think the problem with cancel culture is, is people are being judged by – it lacks nuance. You're you're being judged by one sentence or one comment. Sometimes you're judged by something you might have done 25 years ago. And somebody wants to come on and, and destroy your life. Well, first of all, I, I always question the motivation of, of the cancelers. Why are they doing this? What is it you hope to achieve? Are you trying to better society? Are you trying to make yourself like any, to me, cancel culture says more about the people that are doing the canceling than the people that are being canceled, because where's the empathy and the forgiveness that really is the basis of so much of our, our religious belief. You know, he who is without sin throws the first stone, and and i think that we're forgetting that i think that people are gleefully canceling people and i think it's a it's it there's a fundamental lack of respect and empathy that has taken hold and root in our culture and i think that the, it's it's almost entertainment it's fun to destroy people and i wonder where is that going to end because if we're going to be judging people you can't even in college john everybody who's going to academia now there's there's no free flow of ideas anymore and when i was in college the whole idea was to ex- challenge yourself i learned about ideas that i didn't necessarily agree with or think were good but they're out there and that's what we're supposed to do we're supposed to be intellectually curious creatures that if you find something that you disagree with examine it you know you don't you don't immediately go to the electric chair you give it its day in court and people should be able to defend themselves or talk about what it was they were doing or what they believed in. And they should be judged based on that. But when people come out guns blazing because you said something wrong, that's like frontier justice. And we're supposed to be smarter and better than that. But we're not. And I don't know why. This didn't happen. You know, this is a product of social media. And why
0: does that occur? You know, it's, I don't know. <clears throat> here's the thing. There, Denis Villeneuve the other day said something that I consider to be really stupid. Right. He he came out and made those comments about, oh, you know, this, that and the other thing. And Marvel's just cookie cutter. And they're oh, this yeah. and they're this and they're this. And, and and I was like, OK, that was really stupid. And I love Denis Villeneuve. I, 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 he's a good Canadian kid. I think he's maybe, you know, the director at the height of his powers right now. He might be the best in the world right now uh, at it. So I got mad at his comments. Because I thought they were inappropriate. I thought they were classless. I think attacking the work. If you're a professional director in the DGA and you're trashing on and shitting on the work of your fellow directors, your fellow artists, your fellow creators, I think that's Bush League. And I think that's, he shouldn't do it. But there's a difference between, you know, calling out stupid shit and then canceling because then what cancel culture would want to do is that's it everybody let's boycott dune. Well wait a minute, wait a minute. That's a little excessive. For yeah, do I think what he said was dumb? Sure. I'll call out that what I thought he said was dumb. But is is let's organize a boycott of dune an appropriate response? No. You know, and I I just think look, we live in a culture where you have freedom of speech to say whatever you want to say, but that means everybody else has the freedom to respond to what it is you're saying. You're going to be held accountable for the things you said. It's just when that accountability far overreaches what, what it should like. Yeah. Like Denis Villeneuve said something stupid. I didn't like that. He said it. I called him out for saying something stupid, but it'd be ridiculous to then go, well, now I'm not going to watch Dune. Why? Because he said he didn't like certain movies. It's kind of like Scorsese when people are saying, well, I'm not going to go watch Scorsese movies anymore. Like I thought what Scorsese said was pretty stupid too. But you don't go, well, now I'm not going to watch Scorsese movies. I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing. All right, let's keep rolling on here. Uh next up. Uh Johnny Weiner writes. I've enjoyed the What If series. While not the greatest, uh, it's the most fun to watch over again. The only episode I haven't watched again is the zombies. Even though it was good, I'm not a fan of the comic run, or uh, it was hard to watch. Why is it a missed opportunity to you? Um, oh, Because, it, listen, I think Marvel zombies really caught a lot of people. Like, if you want to do a What If story, Rob, the Marvel zombies is a great example of that that's a terrific example of something you could do something that's really fun. And I thought it was very, I don't know. I, I thought it was very primary. Like I, I just, I, I literally felt like there's something, there's so much they could have done with a zombies episode. Had they given it any thought? And I feel like they just took the first idea that came on the table and then kind of ran with it. And it just, it wasn't compelling to me at all. Then again, at least half of the, what it, I, I haven't really enjoyed what If all that much. There were a couple of episodes that I love. We already talked about this, Rob. I mean, I, I love the the uh, Hank Pym episode. I love the Doctor Strange episode. I kind of appreciated a couple of the others, and some of them I just find, like, there's so much you could do, and you decide to do frat boy Thor, and I only bring that one up because I know you like that one, Rob. But, um, yeah, I was curious. I can't remember if we talked about it, Rob. What did you think about the Zombies episode of What If? Because like, I don't know if we talked about that one.
1: Uh you know what I uh, hear? this is going to seem silly but when you have zombies if hawkeye is a zombie and he can still fire his arrows yeah or zombie yeah. iron man is still using his armor to me it's and i understand they've got the marvel zombies comics and and they're kind of a lark you know they're it's fun i i i just it it annoys me because you're trying to have your cake and eat it too they're not really zombies they're something else you know, if they're undead versions of themselves, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of silly to nitpick, but I like you, I'm like, if you only have eight of these episodes or however many, of the, I don't know how many, how many are there? 10, nine. I don't know. But I, I mean, I thought the frat boy Thor one was, was, I, I liked it. The premise I found a lot of people did amusing. And it, I, that to me should have been the one lark of the season. You know, we're going to go, we party on planets and, and, and and exhaust. We party until they're gone. I mean, there's something about that that appealed <laughs> to me. Um, uh, and I like seeing all those characters show up. But for the most part, I think the, the what-if show examining the possibilities, it really is about the road less traveled. And if you could go back and follow another path, what would that path be? And what do we learn from that? And I think that this what-if show doesn't do so much of that. I think it, at the end, it should leave you like i thought that people liked the doctor strange episode so much because it does that it examines the road less traveled and 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 what a mistake it is to try and go restore the balance of the universe or try and cheat fate and that meant something and i think that's it seems silly to maybe say that for an animated show but you want it to be meaningful at the end and and i, I mean i'm going against the the thor episode wasn't exactly meaningful um, but I, I I would like to have had stories that resonated more, that right. meant something more, where you learned something or had something that you really thought about after, after the show was over. And I don't think they've done enough of that.
0: Right. Again, I, I think the Doctor Strange one did a great job of that. I yep. thought the Hank Pym one. I think I like the Hank Pym one more than most people do. I thought the Hank Pym one where he takes out the Avengers. I I thought that one that made you look at everything completely differently. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Those are two good examples of that. Uh, All right. Next up. Russell Amador writes, Hey, John, uh, as well as well all know, a new Transformers is coming next year. But have they said if it's set in the same universe as Bumblebee? I asked because Bumblebee was probably my favorite of the movies, and I hope they build off that rather than take steps back. I'll be honest with you, I really don't know. I honestly off the top of my head, I'm not really sure. I think they're kind of rebooting it, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but 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 don't don't go to the bank with that because I'm honestly not sure. I will say this, I adored that Bumblebee movie. I yeah. it, to me it it just it it kind of captured what a lot of the potential is in Transformers in live action. And it had Hart Travis Knight of course from Kubo and the Two Strings. He came in to direct it and he just breathed such great life into it. Um, I was really wanting to see a continuation of that. And maybe it is. I, I I just honestly don't know. Rob, do you know anything about it? What are you hoping to see out of Transformers? I
1: I know nothing about it, but I will say this, John, like you, I thought what Travis Knight did with that, with that franchise is exactly the direction it should go in because, you know, it, it opened with that incredible sequence on Cybertron. So you, you had world building and, and they really weighed into that. And I thought it was great. And then, of course, they turned the, the Transformers story into a very, you know, the same way the first. I liked the first Transformers movie with a boy in his car. And this was a girl in her car. And it, it just was it felt it struck the right tone between both the epic nature of Transformers themselves and the human story. And that's a hard thing to do. And I thought it did a great job. I'd love to see more
0: of that. All right. Next up. We've got uh, Bryce, a.k.a. B. Gill Studios writes, Hey, John and friends, second time writing in. As a young indie filmmaker, good on you. Uh, that's on YouTube. What advice would you give to help me get more notice, noticed in general? As I write, produce, direct, and edit all my films that are in the superhero genre, thanks and bring on the filthy. Well, here's what makes your question particularly difficult. And Rob, you know I, I do conferences and things like that, and I'll I'll, I'll I'll always do these things, and I'll talk to a group. I haven't done it in a while because of COVID, but you know, usually the first question everybody asks is a variation of how do I make more money or how do I get more people watching my, my stuff? Nobody ever asks the question, like the first question is never, how do I make my content better? That's never the first question. The first question every single time without fail is, How do I make more money or how do I get more people watching my stuff without ever going back and asking? Now, so what I would say to you, Bryce, is this. And please, Bryce, don't take this as criticism because I've not seen your work. I've not seen your work. But I can't answer the question, how do you get more attention to your work when I don't know if your work's any good or not? And it also depends on what kind of work you're doing because how you get attention for X kind of work is going to be a different approach than how you would get attention for Y kind of work. Does that make sense? And again, my first bit of advice to anybody who asks, how do I grow my channel? How do I get more attention? How do I make more money on it? I'm always going to start at the same place. You need to be asking me questions about how to make your content better because that's always the answer. The answer is always start by making your content better. Start by focusing on how to make it better. Now, if you already think your content is amazing and fantastic, and the world doesn't know what it's missing out on, uh, then then we approach that. But I I can't give an actual good answer to that, Bryce. When I don't know if your content, because because to be fair, to be honest. It's it's very possible that if I watched your content, my answer to you might be, listen, you don't want a lot of people watching your content right now because your content isn't ready and you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So you don't want a ton of people coming and watching your channel right now or watching your content quite yet. What you want to be doing is cultivating your content, making it better so you are ready to have an audience come in and watch it. And again, beyond that, Bryce, and again, I'm not trying to critique your work because I haven't seen your work. I would say go and find those, those videos that I've done before. yeah. You know, whether it's just search on, on, on YouTube for John Campion getting started and I'll give a lot of stuff there. But Rob, uh, you know, as somebody on YouTube, you've got a successful YouTube channel yourself. Um, you obviously have a lot of people who will also ask you, how do I grow my channel? How do I get more people to watch? and you know, all that kind of stuff. What's your bit of advice that you give to people when those questions come up?
1: Well, since he identified the kind of movies he's made, he said he's making superhero movies. I would say this. The most important thing about any content creator on YouTube, the single most important thing is your content has to be uniquely you. Hmm. You, have yeah. be giving, you have to be giving You giving the world something they can't get anywhere else. And when you say that you're making superhero content, I would say, okay, maybe your superhero movies are great. But are they better than Marvel and DC? Are they better than CW shows? Are they better than the animated show, The uh, uh, Invincible? Is it better than The Boys? You're in a sea, you, by your own admission, you're making movies where you're competing with everyone else who's making superhero content. The big boys, so to speak. And I would ask you, as a filmmaker, what it is. what is it about your filmmaking that is unique to you? Superheroes are something everybody else is doing. I would ask... What would you do that was unique to only you? What is the one thing? What is your message or your sense of humor or whatever it is? What, what is it that you've got that no one else has? And I would concentrate on that. And if that unique voice of yours suddenly becomes something that pops, your, your YouTube channel could get much larger.
0: All right. Next up, uh, we go to Irrelevant, who writes... Uh, I'm still holding out for Jimmy Woo being Mephisto, a TV series idea pitch, a post-apocalyptic show that depicts life after the internet suddenly crashes worldwide and cannot be repaired. Thanks, hump day doggies and bring on the filthy. Listen, I am still wanting that uh, Jimmy Woo and Darcy. I mean, listen, it, it wasn't just a joke, Rob. I really do think there is an idea, an idea there for oh, Marvel agree. to pursue. So for those who know what we're talking about, when Wandavision came out, and you had Agent Wu, let me see if I can find an image of that. Uh uh Wu and Darcy. Um Darcy, there we go. Let me see if I can bring them up. Yes, there we go. When when this show, when Wandavision first came out, and we had the return of the MCU characters uh, Wu and Darcy, right? Their dynamic and chemistry together as two normies in the MCU, two non-superpowered characters in the MCU, you know, trying to solve this mystery. A bunch of people in the fan community started speculating, saying, oh my God, because I'm, I'm not the one who came up with this idea. Other people had the idea. But at a Marvel TV show that is modeled kind of after the X-Files. Yeah. And it's Wu and Darcy basically tracking down and investigating superhuman phenomena going on around the world, trying to keep it all in check and stuff like that. With the dynamic these two had, and again, it was great that it wasn't romantic, so a little bit like Shang-Chi and, and, uh, and uh, Katie... in in Shang-Chi there wasn't anything romantic there so that they just had a great dynamic together. And I am telling you it's, it's not just a joke anymore. I really want this show. I really, really want this show. I think this show could be fantastic. And I think it would be a great way to introduce people to a lot of the more obscure things in the MCU because, Rob, I think there's there's a lot of obscure stuff in the MCU that maybe they wouldn't rush out and create a Disney show about. But something like this could be a fantastic way for Disney and Marvel to introduce a lot of viewers to smaller corners of what the MCU, what Marvel's comic lore has been in the past. I, I still love the idea. What about you?
1: Well, I do, too. I, and what I loved about the two of them is they were both really good at their jobs. You know, it was, they had an entertaining... They had an entertaining dynamic, but they were really good at what they were doing, and I like that. I like watching shows about people that really know what they're doing, and, and I love the idea of all the different mysteries. I mean, imagine when the Eternals are revealed. You know, suddenly the two of yeah. them are like, wait, what? <laughs> What's going on here? You know, uh, what an interesting way. Like, what if what if that show is how you could introduce the, the X-Men? What if they discover that? Mutant oh, my fo- gosh. Mutant life is exactly that's been here. Wait a minute. And they think they're on some kind of a big conspiracy and they uncover this whole thing. And that's how they it leads into the the uh, the, the last episode. of The first season is my name is Professor Xavier. I think we should talk.
0: <laughs> a, a true true story. So Anne and I are at a premiere and I can't remember which premiere it was. I shouldn't even tell this story. I shouldn't tell it. You can't start and not But talking. I can't start and not, not finish it. So Anne and I are at a premiere, and I can't remember which one. And after most of these premieres, you come out and you go to the after party. And usually the after party's at a club within short walking distance of the theater. So we come out, and we're walking right behind Kat Dennings, who, of course, plays Darcy, right? And she also had that show, Two Broke Girls. And Kat, look, obviously Kat's an attractive girl. But... I, she decked out that night, man. I mean, she looked fabulous. Like she looked absolutely fabulous. And she was wearing this extremely flattering, uh, very form-fitting dress. And I only bring this up because of something my wife said, okay? That's why I'm bringing this up. But, and in that dress, I mean, Kat Denny's looked, dynamite, just absolute dynamite. And I've always been a big fan of her and the Darcy character ever since the first Thor movie. But the dress also accentuated kind of how top-heavy um, Kat Dennings is. And as Anne and I are standing there at a corner getting right across the street and Kat Dennings is right in front of us with a date. And I remember my wife said, like Anne kind of like leaned up into my hair and goes, is it wrong that I just want to go grab her boobs? <laughs> and I'm like, I mean I I mean we'll probably spend the night in jail honey but uh, I don't know maybe maybe not but she I mean god she is she plays like when she plays Darcy in the MCU and even in Two Broke Girls they kind of make her up to kind of look like the frumpy one she's extremely beautiful Kat Denny's is extremely beautiful and I've had the I've had the the chance to see her a couple of times Uh, In in person. So not only is she delightful on screen, she's actually, they may make her up to look frumpy so they can make Jane look good or they can make the blonde on two broke girls look good. She is stunningly beautiful to go along with that talent. So anyway, eh, that's right. That's just a little, little story there. Okay. Uh, So we got time for one more with Rob still here. Chuck, the mystery ripes. Hey, John. Firstly, thanks for bringing up your interview with Britt Robertson when I asked about Tomorrowland. No problem. Uh, it was a fantastic interview, which I had never seen. Uh, I have been on a George Clooney uh, rewatch binge. What do you think has been his best performance? Okay, thanks a lot for asking that. Yeah, I remember you asking about Tomorrowland. Rob, I mean, George has done a lot of great stuff. He's He's got Oscars on his mantles, all that kind of stuff. And he's played different types of characters and different types of movies but when i whenever George Clooney decides to retire and I look back on George Clooney's career I my first thought will always be "Oh brother where art thou that's that to me I love that movie uh <laughs> the music in it the story I mean it's really a retelling of uh the Odyssey but it's it's fantastic. That, to me, will always be my favorite George Clooney performance. Rob, when you think of Clooney, do you have a favorite performance of his? I
1: do. I love Michael Clayton.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: I, I, I mean, it's more of a subdued performance. I think he's so good in it. I just love that movie so much. And it, it has such a great ending when he faces off against Tilda Swinton. Oh, man, do I love it. Love it.
0: Rob? Uh, We've kept you over time again, but thanks a lot for being here, man. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. But in the meantime, where can people follow you and your adventures online?
1: Um, You can find me on Instagram, Robert Meyer Burnett. Find me on Twitter at Burnett RM or find me on my own YouTube channel,
0: The Burnett Work. All right, dude. Thanks a lot for being here. We'll talk to you again later, man. Have a good one. All right, man. You too. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and the only, the great, Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. And whenever I take the headphones off, look at the (laughs) the line of leaves in my I look like. I don't know what it looks like I've got going on back there, but look at that line. It takes a while for it to come out too. Anyway, uh, Robert Meyer Burnett, ladies and gentlemen. By the way, don't forget, if you live anywhere near where it's playing, go out and check out his new film, Tango Shalom. Make sure you guys go and support that. Okay, let's keep moving on here. We got a little bit of time left here, guys. Uh, Chuck the Mystery writes, uh, ever since we discovered that J.K. Simmons will be playing Gordon and Batgirl and not Jeffrey Wright, as I had assumed, me too, Uh, It made me wonder what the future of that universe was beyond Black Adam, Shazam 2, and Aquaman 2. Do you think Blue Beetle will be in the DCEU, the Reeves universe, or somewhere on his own? With two shows now coming from Reeves and Gotham PD and Penguin, Peacemaker and Batgirl being in the DCEU, HBO Max has a lot going on in the near future with DC. I'm sure much more to come. Yeah, listen, what? That... Seriously, I I don't know if I expressed it really enough how surprised I was when we found out that it was going to be J.K. Simmons being Commissioner Gordon in the Batgirl series because I had just assumed that it was going to be Jeffrey Wright. I had just assumed that this Batgirl series is going to be tied in to the Matt Reeves Batman universe, much like the new Gotham show uh, and the new Penguin show were going to be. And when they announced that it was going to be J.K. Simmons, I was shocked, like straight up shocked. And it does like raise a really big question about what is Warner Brothers' big roadmap here? Now, I think they've already got their roadmap pl- planned out. We just, as the audience, haven't been privy to it yet. As far as where do I think Blue Beetle is going to fall, I think, that's, I think that's clear. I think that's going to be DCEU. You know, Warner Brothers is still committed to this DCEU. We've got another Wonder Woman coming. We've got, you know, the new Shazam that's already wrapped production. Black Adam is wrapped production. You know, these things. They're st- we, Aquaman has wrapped production. Aquaman too. They're still going to do things with this universe, no doubt. I have no doubt that the new Green Lantern stuff that they're doing is going to be tied into the DCEU. But within this grand scheme, they have created this secondary pocket world this different cinematic universe around this Matt Reeves Batman. And we are going to see new stuff in there. Obviously, we've got the Batman movie. We got the Gotham show coming. We got the Penguin series coming. And then we're going to have more Batman movies coming, provided that this one doesn't flop. And I don't think this one's going to flop. So it's it's going to be interesting to see really where they're going with it. But you guys know, I have said for nearly a decade that... I want these studios to engage in this type of stuff. I am bored of everything having to be in one cinematic universe. I'm bored of it. That doesn't mean they don't still make great movies. Obviously they do. Shang-Chi is in the MCU, but and I love it and all that kind of, yes. But, you know, I miss the days when Sam Raimi can come and make a Spider-Man movie where Spider-Man is unique in his world. In the MCU, Tom Holland's Spider-Man is awesome, but ho-hum, he's another guy with superpowers. We've got a 1,000 of those on every street corner in the MCU now. Everybody has superpowers, in the, and there's nothing unique about Spider-Man in the MCU, even though I love him in there and I really do enjoy the movies. But I miss those days. And so when Warner Brothers announced that they were making their Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie, I was over the moon. Because finally... See, don't get me wrong. It's not that I dislike Cinematic Universe... I just don't know why it has to be one or the other. Why not have both? Why not have an active, healthy, ongoing cinematic universe with a lot of characters and stuff like that and then make movies and stories that are that are separate from it? Why not have the best of both worlds where a filmmaker can totally come in and have total creative freedom and create a character that is unique in their world and is not beholden to the continuity of everything else in a cinematic universe and they can just be their own thing. And so... I loved when we heard that they were making that Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie. And look at the results. It was nominated for Best Picture, made over a billion dollars, and won Joaquin Phoenix an Academy Award. And I think we're all glad that that movie exists. And so I'm kind of excited, to be honest with you, that we're, we're seeing Warner Brothers have the testicular fortitude to try something that Marvel is not willing to try. I'll say it. Marvel scurred. As uh, Will Bond would say on PTI, Marvel's scared. They're scared. Marvel's scared to do anything outside of the MCU. They're scared. They're terrified to do anything outside of the MCU because they know the MCU works. They're scared to try making X-Men outside of the MCU. They're scared to do anything like that. Now look. <laughs> Obviously what they do works, right? I mean, hell, look look, look what I'm wearing. (laughs) Obviously what they do works. But I am just telling you, I am personally really excited that Warner Brothers is saying, look, this whole trend and formula of everything has to be in one cinematic universe. Let's break away from that. Let's have a cinematic universe and let's do some great stuff in it, hopefully. And let's do some things that break away from that and let's mix it up. Let's mix it up and try doing these different things. They tried it with Joker and it was tremendously successful. And I'd like to see, I'll be honest with you, as brilliant as Kevin Feige is, he's the most brilliant mind in Hollywood right now. As brilliant as Kevin Feige is, I would love to see him Take that step that we're seeing Warner Brothers do and do things that are outside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'd love to see them do it. Experiment with a couple of things. And you know what? Maybe Deadpool will be that thing. I doubt it. But maybe Deadpool will be that thing. Maybe Deadpool will be that that, that little experiment that says, okay, let's try making something that is outside of the MCU. And it's starting to look like maybe that'll be it. And, and maybe it will, maybe it won't. I don't know. And maybe it'll be, be so successful, like Joker was, and they'll and Kevin Feige will go, you know what? Yeah. We can take some great, unique, fantastic characters, and we'll we can let them have a, a world and have a movie universe that is their own, that they're separate and not a part of the MCU. And we can do that. We can try both and. It doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. It'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see. But, yeah. Now, EMAT is writing, but isn't what if that experiment? Not really. Because all what if is are these little 25-minute throwaway things. And even then, they're trying to say, but look, audience. See, they're still kind of connected to the MCU because of everything that happened in Loki and the, and the multiverse. See, it's still kind of MCU. See? Like, instead of just saying, no, this is a separate story is a totally separate thing. This has nothing to do with the MCU at all in any way shape or form. I again, so I while I am a little bit confused about what Warner Brothers is doing with, you know, what is going to be the distinguishing factor between the uh Matt Reeves Batverse and the the ongoing DCEU, um I'm excited. Maybe it'll be crap, maybe it'll be a train wreck, but I'm excited that they're trying. I'm excited that they're trying. So We'll see. We'll see. All right. Uh, next up, we've got uh, Jack lumbers who writes, uh, if this Mario movie is a success, is it safe to assume that Mario versus Sonic is at least in discussions? Nah, I don't think so. One's a completely animated movie. One's a live action hybrid. So I, I really don't think that's something that's uh, on the table right now. Look more than anything else. I do Tell me in the live chat. Let me, let me put up a poll in the live chat. And maybe because maybe I'm wrong about this and you guys have no desire for it. Do you want a live action Link or Zelda? I should put a uh, uh, Zelda uh, movie. I do. But I'm for those of you who are watching live right now, and this will only be applicable for you guys watching live, I just put up a poll in, in the uh, live chat there. Do you want a live action Link movie? See, what I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this... Movie is successful, you know, so that Nintendo who has been very, very, you know, shy about getting, letting their characters become movies again. I'm hoping that this movie is successful and it makes Nintendo feel confident in make, letting their game characters be movie or or television characters again. And I'm hoping it'll be so successful that it'll motivate them to do other things with their characters. Uh, You know, A. Marcellus in the live chat Is mentioning Super Smash Brothers Is one that a lot lot of people want to see Uh, I personally have always thought A live action Link movie Could be fascinating I mean, it could totally be A Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings Kind of epic Sci-fi fantasy sort of stuff And maybe I'm wrong Maybe I'm wrong So there's about 200 votes That you guys have already put in About 200 of you guys have voted already and, uh, 64% of you are saying you do want live action. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I thought more of you would 38 or 36% of you don't want a live action, uh, link or Zelda movie. I kind of do. I really do. But, uh, some of you don't. And there it is. That's why we asked, that's why we all have different opinions. All right. Uh, thanks for participating in that, uh, poll there guys. Next up, Jack Lumber also writes after finishing Lucifer, which bad place afterlife this includes judgment method and redemption method. Do you prefer Lucifer or the good place? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they're both such different takes on what they're for, but I'll tell you what, at the end of the day, uh, probably the Lucifer, by the way Lucifer ended, and I don't want to give any spoilers away. The, the Lucifer method of hell becomes much more preferable. Again, I don't want to give anything away but uh, that one seems to be to be, that one seems to me to be obviously the more preferable one, Jack. All right, HV three writes, uh, "Hey John, uh, you have probably talked about this, but for the first time I have seen uh, Netflix is doing a weekly drop. I went to watch the Great British Baking Show, and it said weekly episodes drop every Friday. Is this the Netflix the first Netflix show to do this? I don't know if it's the first one to do it. I don't know." But listen, I've been saying for a while that I believe within the next three years. And again, this is just nobody, no executives at Netflix have told me this. Okay. Just to be clear, this isn't inside information. This is just me speculating. But I think within the next three years, Netflix won't move exclusively to weekly drops. But I think within about three years, you are going to see it be not uncommon that Netflix will have shows that don't drop their whole season at once. Because more and more, it's becoming obvious that weekly drops is far better for your results. Because weekly drops gets people buzzing about it, talking about it, and then other people jump on board with it. Like, again, I bring up this example a lot, but it's true. When Punisher Season 2 came out, Everybody talked about Punisher season two for a week. And then nobody was asking questions. Nobody was talking about Punisher season two anymore. I Look, I'm just telling you the way it is. That's a fact. That is an absolute fact. When Punisher season two dropped, which I thought was great. I, I love Punisher. I love season one and season two of Punisher. But when Punisher season two dropped, Everybody was buzzing about it and talked about it and asked questions about it for about a week. And then poof, it was gone. And nobody else jumped on it afterwards and, and it was just done. People watched it, they liked it. There's nothing left to talk about and it was done. When Mandalorian comes out, we're talking about Mandalorian for minimum of two months straight. Two months straight every day people want to talk about Mandalorian. Mandalorian. Why? Because an episode drops, we buzz about it, we talk about it, we theorize about it, all that kind of stuff. And then another episode drops, and we're buzzing, and we're talking, and people are talking to people they know. You're not watching Mandalorian yet? Oh boy, you got to jump on Mandalorian. And then more people, and guess what? The ratings start to go up and up and up and up and up. And then we do it again next week, and then we do it again the week after that. And then Mandalorian is there in the public consciousness. WandaVision is a great example of this. WandaVision started with decent ratings, but by week four or five, it was the number one TV show in the world because people kept talking about it week after week after week and buzz grew and grew and grew. And so the audience grew and grew and grew. Again, compare that to Punisher season two, which was great, but nobody was talking about it after five or six days. It was done. People watched it. They talked about it for a couple of days. There was nothing new coming. And then we just moved on to talk about something else. But WandaVision comes out. We talked about WandaVision for almost two months straight. Mandalorian comes out. We're talking about it for almost two months straight. Loki comes out. We're talking about it for six, seven, eight weeks straight. Once, you know, uh, the Book of Boba Fett comes out, I guarantee you we're going to be talking about it for like two months straight. That is clearly the better approach... If you want your shows to gain audience and build momentum, if your shows are good, if they're good, that's a big important part. If they're good, then just dropping a whole season at once, people get excited, talk about it for a week, and then they move on to the next thing. So yeah, I do believe that within three years, It will be semi-regular for Netflix to have shows that they drop once a week as opposed to entire series at once. I don't think they're going to abandon entirely the the idea of dropping entire seasons at once. As a binger, I kind of like it when they drop an entire series at once. But if I'm running a network, I'm dropping them weekly. It's just clearly more beneficial. It just works for them way better if they just drop it weekly. But So, again, I'm thinking within three years we're going to see that happening. All right. Uh, next up, we go to Jonathan, who writes, Wow, dear Evan Hansen, 37% critic rating, 93% audience score. I don't know if I've seen such a wide uh, divide this year, or at least, have you? Anyway, I'm just going to go see Free Guy again before the October avalanche of movies begin. You know, that's a great thing. Let me bring this up here for a second. Dear Evan uh, Hansen, Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, so... Um, Right now, dear Evan Hansen, the numbers changed a little bit, but not too terribly much. Dear Evan Hansen right now is sitting at a 33 percent critic rating and a 90 percent, 90, 9 zero audience score. That is that's that's rare. The vast, vast, vast majority of the time, the the audience score and the critic score will would be within about 30 percent of each other. the vast majority of the time. It's rare that you see it like almost 60% difference. That's rare. And so you're right, it's unusual. Um, and I don't know what to attribute that to. Most people I know who have seen Dear Evan Hansen and I didn't get a chance. I had a big UFC this weekend and then I went to, again to the LA Rams game. And so I didn't get a chance to run out and see Dear, Dear Evan Hansen yet. But <clears throat> uh, the people I know, I've, I know about three or four people who have seen Dear Evan Hansen. Not one of them loved it. One of them liked it, a couple of them didn't like it, but none of them loved it, and none of them outright hated it either. I should I should mention that none of them outright hated the movie, but uh, two of them were like, "Nah, it wasn't very good." One of them was, "Yeah, it's good, but not great." So I don't know. I don't personally know anybody who watched it and loved it. Uh, but you're right, man. It is it is not normal to see, um, like almost a sixty percent difference between the critic rating and the audience rating that's rare it happens because all films subjective it's going to happen once in a while but it's rare to see i'm just curious have any of you guys in the live chat have any of you guys watched the movie not many of you did it only made 7.3 million dollars in its opening weekend so i know not a lot of you went to go see it uh but If there's any of you guys in the live chat who have seen it, uh, let me know what you thought of it. A lot of you guys are saying you didn't see it. Bryce Evans is saying that he saw it and that he didn't like it. Uh, Most of you guys are saying that you didn't see it, though. Okay, so which is, again, not surprising. Most people didn't see it. It only made about $7 million. Uh, But Nick in the live chat is saying he saw it and he loved it. TTP is saying it was good. Uh, Alex is saying he saw it and he hated it. So, yeah, you're getting a little bit of a mix there. But uh, it is it is rare to see, man. That big of a disparity is rare to see. All right, next up. I uh, just got a few minutes left here, guys. Uh, Jonathan writes, I remember the first crossover event I've ever witnessed. There were two animated shows I loved, Fairly Odd Parents and Jimmy Neutron. Uh, back at the height of both shows, they did a three-part crossover for me. For me, it was an event like Avengers. What was your first crossover? Ooh. Um... I think, now I got to go back to when I was a kid. Okay, a kid. But I think the first crossover I ever saw, and I was young, do you guys remember Different Strokes? Let me see if I can find something here. Um, uh, different Strokes. Uh. Okay, so Different Strokes was a show that was on, you know, a, a long, long time ago. But I, I watched it as a kid. I watched it as a kid. Anyway, if I remember correctly, oh, there's a picture. Let me see if I can get this picture on screen here. Here's a picture. Okay. So one of the characters on Different Strokes was the, their maid, Mrs. Garrett, the redhead there. Mrs. Garrett was the maid. Now, if I'm not mistaken, they then spun off that show, and I believe they did an episode or two uh, of a crossover. They did a new show called Facts of Life. Do you guys remember this one? They later went on and made Facts of Life. And... I believe there was a crossover episode of it, if I remember correctly. Now, again, this is... I was really young to remember, so I, I can't remember. But I do remember this. You want to talk about how different the world is right now? I remember one episode because it really made an impact on me as a kid. There was one episode of Facts of Life where the girl in the middle at the top, the brunette in the middle at the top, there was an episode where um, there was an episode where she was really struggling about. Um, whether or not to have sex with her boyfriend, right? Whether or not to have sex. That was the big question of the day. Now today I'm watching Modern Family and it's like there, there was a joke where the family is out gardening and the mom says to her son, hey, grab that little hoe. And the son grabs his sister. Have you guys seen that clip? I get, It's hilarious. She says, because they're, they're outside gardening as a family, she goes, uh, quick, grab that little hoe. And the brother grabs his sister. And the sister's like, that's not what she meant. And then she looks at her mom. Wait, is it? But anyway, so even just the way that that sex was handled differently between that era and this era. But anyway, to me in my head, that I think is like the earliest cross. Was By the way, guys in the live chat who are old enough to remember, was there a... um. Was there a crossover between Smith and & Smith and the A-team? In, in the back of my, again, this was when I was a kid, but in the back of my brain, there was a crossover of Smith and & Smith and A-team. I could be wrong about that. Um, uh, anyway, anyway, so, 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 anyway, again, way too early for me to remember, but I think that might've been it. I think that might've been it. Okay, last question of the day here, guys, and then we're going to have to wrap it up for the day. Um, we got BK Dan who writes, John, you said in After Dark that faith-based movies suck. Yeah, they, they pretty much do. Uh, what about Passion of the Christ? It did $300 million domestic and $600 million worldwide. In my opinion, not bad on a $30 million budget. Sucks. Well, we're, BK, Dan, you're talking about two different things. How much money a movie makes is not an indicator about whether it's good or not. Whether a movie is good is determining whether it's good. Bad movies can make money. Great movies can make no money. Um, but, I'll be honest with you, I don't consider Passion of the Christ a faith-based movie. I mean, it's a movie that obviously revolves around a religious theme. But when I talk about faith-based movies, like to me, that was an interpretation, a historical interpretation sort of thing. Faith-based movies to me, and again, my despising of faith-based movies comes from back when I was in seminary, like back when I was in Bible college, because we all hated them. Like I can't think of one person I went to Bible college with that liked faith-based movies. We all hated them. They were terrible. They they were they were pandering nonsense. They they and it, look, they could have been made good, but I don't consider Passion of the Christ any more of a faith-based film than I consider Ben-Hur. Cuz the full I believe correct me if I'm wrong, but the full the full name of Ben-Hur is Ben-Hur, A Story of the Christ. I believe that's the full name of it. But I don't really consider that a faith-based movie. That's that's just a movie that happens to take place within, there's a faith context. But then there are like faith-based movies. And they are generally awful. Generally awful. Now, that's just my opinion. You don't have to agree. But there is one faith-based movie that is coming out that I will admit I have some interest in. And that's the Kurt Warner movie. I think it's called American Underdog. They showed us a bunch of it at CinemaCon. Um, I'm a big Kurt Warner fan. So I am curious to see if that one turns out to be good or not. I mean, I don't know. Whatever. Uh, I'm That one I'm curious to, to see. By the way, Aiden is writing, John, are you seeing Venom today? No, I'm seeing Venom tomorrow. I mentioned that a little bit earlier in the show. I'm going to go see Venom tomorrow. Um. So, uh, yes, I'm going to go see Venom tomorrow. Very excited about that, by the way. I, I won't be able to do a right out of the theater review of it because it's still under review embargo until Thursday, which makes me nervous. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm nervous that they're withholding the review embargo till Thursday, which is the day it opens. That screams... We have no faith in this movie, which is weird because I have talked to people at Sony and I know they have faith in this movie. They believe in this movie. So why they're not lifting the review embargo until the day it comes out to me is completely weird, but I'm seeing it tomorrow. I'm super excited about it. Uh, I'll let you guys know what I think once I'm, uh, once I'm allowed to do so. Anyway, guys, listen, there are still more questions to come. From uh, more from uh, Ben Rayner, BK Dan, Sam Fisher, and others. Do not worry, guys. There's a companion video coming later today, so keep your guys' eyes open for it. Also, I'm going to be dropping a John and Ann vlog a little bit later today of mine and Ann's little adventure going to SoFi Stadium and me getting to watch the goat of goats, Tom Brady, playing for the first time in my life. I'm going to be putting that up a little bit later today. Keep your guys' eyes open for that. But for now, that'll do it. For today's installment of The John Campy Show, guys, thanks so much for being here and making the show a part of your day. Big thank you to Robert Meyer Burnett for bringing his glory and goodness to the show. And a very special thank you to all of you guys who sent in the live comments and questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel as you did. And all of us involved here at The John Campy Show, thank you guys so very much for your support. All right, guys, remember to do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me, guys. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye bye.